Welcome to the Chimney and Fireplace Success Network, a weekly broadcast sponsored by CVC Coaching, hosted each week by industry speaker, coach, author, and educator, Jerry Eisenhower. Our presentations are produced to assist business owners and managers in turning their business dreams into their business realities. And now, here's your host, Jerry Eisenhower. Hey, and thanks for joining us again here at the Chimney and Fireplace Success Network. You know, we do this podcast every single week, and we bring on really some rock stars. In the last couple weeks, we've had people like last week was Scott McCain. We've had Larry Wingett. We've had Damian Mason, Tom Ziegler, the list goes on. So what I want to do now is I want to move over to rock stars within the industry. And what I'm reaching out to is some of the people that make a difference in the way that we do business and where we're going to go and people that can make a difference in your business. And to this week, I've asked a gentleman to be my guest. His name is Rick Blahos. And Rick is someone I've gotten to know through his involvement. He is employed by Hefbog, I believe you pronounce it. It's under initials and the National Fireplace National Fireplace, uh, National Fireplace Institute, NFI. But what Rick does is Rick administers all of the NFI certification programs, which means manuals, which means CEU approvals, which means all kinds of stuff. And right now they're developing a new discipline, which is called the Hearth Design Certification. So Rick, are you out there with me, brother, ready to talk a little bit today? I am here, Jerry, and I'm thrilled to be here. I'm not so sure I can live up to rock star status, more like boat anchor, but hey, you know what? We'll give it a shot here. Hey, I tell you what, we'll drag it along. We'll go with the both of us will get by as best we can. So, Rick, first thing is, I, I don't think a lot of people know the path that Rick traveled in this industry because you didn't just one day appear in this industry and all of a sudden you're the big dog at NFI. There was a path you traveled. So tell us a little about Rick Blahus and what's your actual experience in the free enterprise system of working in the hearth industry. Give us up that path of what took you to NFI. Well, I started back in uh, 1983. I came out of a background in the photo industry and my father-in-law happened to be working for a stove company. They needed a sales rep out in California. So my wife and I packed our bags moved to California to sell wood stoves. I had never used a wood stove. I had never sold a wood stove. I was that proverbial sales rep that everybody hates because the sales rep knows absolutely nothing. Uh, Lived a short time out in California, decided we loved the stove industry, did not enjoy living in California. So we moved back to the Midwest and started our own repping company. So we actually covered seven states in the Midwest for the next 20 years. In doing that, I came to the realization that dealers needed training. So I started doing many training meetings for my dealers. One of the companies I was selling for at the time kind of caught wind of it. And in 2000, they asked me to come to work for them and do their training meetings. So I went to work for a manufacturer for several years. And then in uh, the very late 2006, Um, I had actually started a program for our dealers doing online classes and um, the Hearth Education Foundation found out about it, uh, asked me to come and start an online training program for them. So I went to work and um, 
started that hearth online training in the very late 2006. In 2011, I moved into the position of uh, executive director, and they haven't got rid of me yet. I hear you, man. You know, Rick, that takes you back because, you know, what this enables people to do, you and I have lived through changes in this industry. We have lived through the changes. We've watched the EPA. We've watched different things. We've watched the safety concerns. We've watched this industry switch from, at one time, a fireplace show to a horror show to a barbecue show to a patio or whatever. We've seen tremendous changes. We don't see a lot of the just stove shops we did that you probably sold to in the 80s that were just wood stove shops. In fact, when I first opened my first retail store, it was an I bought an Englander wood stove store, and that's what it is. We just sold wood stoves. Then we started selling gas logs. We eventually went into patio furniture, outdoor living, gas grills, manufacturing, and all that. So tell me a little bit about the mission of, of the organization today. Where is it going to go to? And so you'll know, I can remember this at one time was the WORF organization. It was the Wood Heating Education Research Foundation that I got certified by when it first came out. And I think it was 1983 was when the very first certification I ever got was the WORF certification. But it's changed names a lot. It's went through Hearth and like I said, it's went through the NFI and I was actually the first certification chair at NFI when we first started doing the new certifications. So tell me what the organization does today. What's your mission? What are you doing out there, Rick? Okay, the Hearth Patio Barbecue Education Foundation is the educational arm of HPBA, the Trade Association. We're technically a separate organization because for, for legal reasons, there's things that they can do that we can't do there's things that we can do. So technically we're separate from HPBA, but essentially we are the educational arm of the, the trade association. The, the WORF certification, which eventually became the Hearth Education Foundation, which eventually became the Hearth Patio Barbecue Education Foundation, um, started their certifications actually probably in, in 1981, 1982 by early 2000, they realized that we had a certification program that wasn't meeting the best practices of the certification community. So we formed NFI, we formed the National Fireplace Institute, completely redid the certification program and, and came out with three certifications at the time, wood, gas, and pellet. And we, we, we strive very carefully to follow the best practices of what good, credible certification programs do. Okay. And you know, that's the time that I was on. I was on what we call the first board of governors for the organization because Worth to Hearth and all this went through a period that Hearth was actually operating on its own independently for several years. Ben Weathersby was the executive director at that time. And to move forward, they had to move back in the position and more of a relationship with HPBA. And that has seemed to serve you very, very well over the years as far as, far as how you've been able to move to that next avenue and how you're going forward. So let me ask you this. I'm hearing a lot that certification 
is not only becoming more recognized. In fact, if you look at a lot of manuals, the manuals that the manufacturers are putting out, they are recommending NFI installers. But I think the more important part is, is the local regulators and around the country where NFI certification is now recognized and it's held to an equal stature with some of the local licensing, such as in HVAC, etching plumbing, uh, gas piping, other things that also issue some challenges because a lot of people are having to revamp what they're promoting. So am I looking at this right? Is the NFI certification becoming more and more recognized than what people need to have to meet their local regulations, Rick? Yeah, the operative word that you mentioned there, Jerry, is local. So many of the licensing requirements nationwide are local decisions by a local community or a county or a, maybe a state. NFI is recognized in several states, but more than that, there's many counties, cities, and local municipalities that recognize it. The biggest challenge, or not the biggest, but one of the challenges I face is people ask me, so where is NFI recognized? And the answer is, I don't know, because it all hand, happens locally. Nobody ever calls us to say, can we use your certification as a criteria for our license? They just adopt it. In states and in municipalities that have questions, I'll get involved in the process because they have questions about the program. But it all happens locally. It's because somebody locally went to their local board and said, if you want us to have a license, here's a program that is credible, that we, that's already done. You don't have to recreate the wheel. The program is already done. One of the differences between HPVA as a trade association and the Education Foundation is that it, it's, it's called lobbying. And we all hear about lobbyists every time you hear a political conversation. But anytime you go to your local municipality to say, we want you to recognize the National Fireplace Institute, that's considered lobbying. As a 501c3 nonprofit, we are legally prevented from lobbying. So that has to happen either through the trade association or because a local retailer, a local chimney sweep, somebody went to that local municipality and said, here's a good idea to make your job a little bit easier. Yeah, and one of the things I've noticed, and I'm not sure when you started this, but I only recently noticed it myself, is y'all have developed a very innovative way now that people can actually take their NFI exams in their own office. And I, and I think that when this, when I saw this, like, oh, and you and I had a conversation about this, because like, how do they do this? But then you explain the process. You even explained to me about the cat and the guy jumped in the guy's lap. How, <laughs> how the guy that was proctoring it questioned the sanctity or the honesty of the test taking process. So how long have you been doing this? And tell me a little bit about how people get their certification under NFI sitting in their own office that they don't have to travel and go to a remote location. They don't have to send their people out of town with the travel expense. They can now do it sitting in their office. I thought that was a phenomenal development on y'all's part, Mark. I mean, Rick. 
It, it, it was, you know, we've given our exams and still give our exams on paper and pencil. We give the exams at any of the PSI laser grade test centers, but so many of our dealers, our installers are out in rural areas where they're traveling three, four, five, six hours to get to a test facility. All of these new online universities that you see advertised on TV have created an environment, they've created a business for online proctoring of exams. Our exam is a closed book proctored exam. We want somebody in the room to make sure that you're not looking the answers up in the book. These online proctoring companies will use your computer's webcam and microphone, and they will literally watch you take the test. There is a series of steps you go through to make sure that you are who you say you are. There's a series of steps that make sure that there's nobody else in the room. They can monitor everything that's on your, your uh, uh, computer screen. They, can they watch you and um, they have created an environment that 24 hours a day, if you're best at night, take the exam at night. If you're at your best in the morning, take the exam in the morning. Uh, you make an appointment with the proctoring company and you set up the time and you go online and take the test when it's convenient for you. The example that you were, you were talking about was a situation where they watch your eye movement and this one guy taking a test kept looking down at his lap and the proctor thought he must have a book or he must have his notes down there and he keeps looking down at his lap and the proctor stopped the exam <sighs> only to find out that it was the guy's cat that kept jumping on his lap and that's why he kept looking down. But it's that level of detail that they're doing to make sure that we can maintain a credible certification, but still make it convenient all at the same time. Okay, so let's give an example. Even though this is a podcast, you and I are talking on computers. You can see me. I can see you right now, correct? Correct. You can see my screen right now, can't you? Mm-hmm. You can tell what I'm doing. If I, if I dropped my screen and went to something else, you would be able to tell this, wouldn't you? Yep. So they're taking this test. Is, is the test they're taking, is it a computer test? Yes. Uh, it's a separate company, but we, have, we, we found a company that will host the exam. So, so the student logs into the test-taking software. The proctor has to verify that they're there before the student can get into the test. And so the student is taking the exam online and the proctor is watching the student the entire time, making sure that everything is on the up and up. You know, that's amazing because, you know, we do a lot of online courses and a lot of people wonder, well, how do you know people are paying attention? Well, one way is we can turn on a cam if we wanted to, but we also have the capability that if you're watching our class or our course while it's ongoing, and you decide to flip to another screen, believe it or not, it throws a flag up on my screen and it says this person is no longer attentive. And it's like, you got to be, you know, so when you're taking these things, you know, you're opening yourself up to due diligence. But the advantage of this is you're able to take this test sitting right in your office. And you also said at the best time of day for you, I love that because, yeah, 
different times of day, people are going to be more alert. I'm not a, I'm not a morning guy. I'm not a 7 a.m. guy. I'm not a trial liner. Now, 8 o'clock at night, hey, I'm, I'm great. I'm, I'm bruising along. And we all go through this. So a person can actually do this. So here's my question. If they're going to do an online proctoring, Rick, what, there's got to be a little extra cost for this. So what does it cost them to take a test? Not the let's, let's talk about the exam fees, okay? Give me the exam fees, but tell me what it's going to cost to have this proctor watch me do it. Okay, we've got several different exam packages available. But assuming um, you're a member of HPBA, uh, our basic exam package is $449. That gets you the reference manual. It gets you access to the entire six-hour online review class and the exam. If you want to take that exam from your own home or office, there's a $40 surcharge. Uh, we've got to pay the proctor. You know, if you go to a laser grade test site, that's all included in what we pay laser grade. But if we're going to have a proctor sit and watch you take a two and a half hour exam, we've got to pay the proctor something. So it's a $40 surcharge for the online convenience. But what most dealers tell me is they can't put a guy in a truck and send him to a test center for 40 bucks. I can't. So it, can't, it really isn't a bad deal. Yeah, you can't send somebody to the other side of town for 40 bucks anymore. Okay, I mean, right. to me, like I said, whenever you said that, it's like, okay, this is crossing a fresh new threshold. Because the biggest thing you hear in this industry, well, I'm away out here in Idaho, or I'm in New Mexico, or, you know, believe it or not, we got places in North Carolina that's not real close to a lot of humanity. I was up in New York last year, and you get up under, in the lakes region of New York, you can't find gas, okay? So, you know, everything is not right there. But even for a company that may have a test center right there in town, to me, this is a whole new avenue in the way which it kind of takes out that question. Well, I can't get to a test center. That's now gone, right? It is. And, and it, it goes back to my philosophy about uh, even online classes. Because while I thoroughly enjoy standing in front of a room of people and teaching a class, the reality is a lot of our business is done in very rural areas. And a lot of these people have never had the opportunity to take a class or to sit for an exam because they are so far out. Yeah, and you know, that's why that was one of the reasons we started developing our online classes this year. I, you know, the very first online presentation, Rick, I ever done was with you. It was some years ago, I conducted a class and I can remember how nervous I was coming in to do this. Like, how do you manipulate this thing? You're telling me, uh, well, there's your highlighter pen, and there's your spotlight and all that. But actually, once you get adjusted to doing it, the only problem from my aspect is when I'm teaching online is I don't see my students' faces. I don't see their reactions. So I've got to assume, but we also have a system in ours where they can ask the question if they're attending it live, or if they're attending it recorded, they can email us a question. So, you know, in today's world, Online training is where it's going to. Universities do it. It's how nurses get their recertification. And that was one of the things about the internet. The internet is technology. It's, you know, it's why we're, it's how we're going to educate. And our kids, 
That's how they're educating them in school now. So we've got to adjust it. But again, my congratulations as a as an alumni of your board of governors. That online proctoring, I think, is one of the most significant tools that y'all have handed this industry. So whoever came up with that, if it was you or whatever, congratulations and thank you for me as an educator and a coach. Okay. So you got another question? We actually started it. Uh, it'll be two years in January, two years ago that we started it. And the first year we didn't promote it much. We said, okay, this is new. Let's just kind of, you know, try it kind of behind the scenes. And uh, we, we put a year into it before we really rolled it out. And it has worked out very, very well. It's very quickly becoming our, one of our most popular uh, ways of taking the exam. Okay, well, we're promoting that also. Like I said, when we do our NFI gas class and that ones, that's part of what we're doing is, is, is heading them towards that online proctoring to get their tests, get it while it's fresh. Here you're going through the class. Now get your tests lined up and go there and get this, okay? So again, I think this is the way that's showing how you guys are really moving to the forefront as an educational foundation and you're really fulfilling your mission. But listen, I'm seeing a lot of people and I'm seeing this term and I'd like you to share this term with the people that are listening to me. You have a classification of certification, which is actually a combination and it's called a, I believe a hearth master certified can you explain what that means? And also, once you attain it, how do you retain it? Okay, it's actually a master hearth professional or an MHP as we call them. And it's, it's simple. We offered, up until this year, we only had three certifications. We certified installers in wood, gas, and pellet. And the master hearth professional is the person who certified in all three fuel types. The minute our system picks up that you have three valid certifications, it, it on our website, it lists you as a master heart professional. We send you a special certificate. We've got special patches, a special ID card to try to give the people who have gone that extra step a little bit of extra recognition. Maintaining it is simple. You've got to maintain all three certifications. Some people, when they renew their certification, they want to do so by taking the exam again. So they take all three exams again. But we also have a CEU pro program or continuing education units where if you take enough classes during the course of your three-year certification, you can renew your certification by CEUs. Our certifications are valid for three years. If you have one certification, you need 24 continuing education units. If you have two, three, or now four certifications, you need a total of 32 CEUs. So over the course of three years, you need to sit for about 32 hours of class time. Whether that be our classes, your classes, classes you take at Expo, CSIA classes, uh, there's a manu most manufacturer training has CEUs. There's all kinds of CEUs that are available, but you need a total of 32 at the end of that three-year process. Now, these have to be CEU approved. So like when I'm going to submit a CEU, an application, I have to send you a course title. I have to send you when I'm going to present it. 
I have to send you that I'm going to do it online or I'm going to do it in person. If I'm going to do it in person again, I have to advise you that I'm going to, we'll say that I set it up for December 10th and then next March I saw it again. I got to send you a note said, Rick, Mary Jo, Bo, everybody, I'm re please add this to your course schedule. If it's an online course, we have passwords, code words built into our classes now that you simply send those back. But the key thing is, CEUs, it is not hard to get in a three-year period, Rick, 32 CEUs. I mean, we have produced since the middle of September, we have produced 52 hours of classroom, okay? And CEUs, so you guys know, if it's a day-long class, usually you're going to get six CEUs for a day, correct, Rick? Correct. If, if it breaks down to an hour or two-hour class, you may get one per hour, so it kind of determines. And if I'm not mistaken, isn't there a limit on how many CEUs a class can get, like 16? We can give, yeah, we can give a maximum of six per day or 16 for a multi-day class. Right. Um, is the maximum. That's what I mean. So there's different. But the whole criteria is, the thing is, getting 32 hours of education in a three-year period. And what I'm understanding is, that's going to suffice for all my disciplines. Am I correct? That is correct. We, we do break it down into three different categories. We have technical classes, we have safety, health, and liability, and then we have electives that can be business classes, it could be extra technical, extra safety, uh, it could be barbecue classes, it could be just about anything other than technical and safety, health, and liability. Right. And, you know, I, you know, we worked a while to get identification. From my understanding, when I submit a class, if it's not within the realm of one of the three disciplines, like it's in gas and it would be in line with the manual and expanding on something covered in the manual, then it's usually going to come out elective or health and safety. That's going to be something we'll say that a guy went to a CPR class or he went to a respirator class. These things, actually, some of them can don't y'all accept like sometimes a Red Cross CPR or things like that? Is that also accepted? Red Cross, uh, OSHA classes, uh, CPR classes, the, all of those are accepted. We, we categorize them as standardized adult education. Yeah. Uh, if you take a class that you think applies, uh, yes, we will probably grant CEUs for it. The, for, for us, you're right, a technical class is a technical class of what we teach in our material. You could learn how to rewire your truck, and it's very technical subject matter, but it's not technical subject matter for us. So we look at the material that we present in our manual, and if it falls within the realm of what we teach, it's a technical class. If it's not, we, we label it a, a, an elective. Okay, if we look at other uh, certifying agencies, CSIA, CSIA in a three-year class in a three-year term, I believe, requires 48 CEUs in their three-year cycle. Now, while you're getting one CEU per hour going to NFI, you're also accumulating that same CEU for CSIA. Am I correct? So when you that's correct. Yeah. So they have they have different categories of CEUs. They've got about five different categories. Uh, so you, they're, they're, they're a little bit different. And the other thing that they have the ability to do that we don't is a class could get 
maybe it gets a half a CEU for business and a half a CEU for technical, where for us it has to be all technical or all safety or all elective. Right. That's one from my end. That's one of the things we do, because usually if I'm doing a class and the NFI comes back and you have a committee that reviews to approve it, then I will see I got 12 electives, we'll say, for a two day class. And it just comes back as 12 electives. Then I get one from CSIA and it says three and a half for this, two and a half for this. You know, I don't think they've broken down more than a half at this point, to my experience. If they have, I haven't seen it, but usually in half points. But in both organizations, you have to have so many in each in each of those classifications. Am I right? That's correct. And the important thing, and the reason why you have to keep telling us about the dates, is because the CEUs don't start until after you're certified, and you have to take the class before you expire. So there's a three-year time span. So we, if it's the same class that you teach over and over and over again, we have to make sure that the student took it after he was certified before he expired. Right. And, and that's then, why the date's important. Right. And as an educator, I have a two-year cycle on the class. Then I have to refile for CEUs. We, and then we work by, by actually by course numbers. It's like if I ask you a class name, that's a lot harder to find than it is a course number. The course, you know, I have found out that the certifying agencies they're, they really like to see those course numbers a whole lot more than they want to see a, a name of a course, right, Rick? Yeah, when I came into the role of as executive director, everything was filed alphabetically. And, um, you know, I was actually at an event one time. I routinely taught a salesmanship class. And I was at an event. There was a guy that was going to teach a salesmanship class. And I wanted to go sit in his class. And all of a sudden, it turns out I was the instructor because the organization sponsoring the event had changed the name and never told me. And I never knew that I was like, fortunately I had the class with me and I was able to teach it, but class titles change so much. So we started giving it course numbers. And the best thing I think we ever did was in 2013, we worked with CSIA. So the CSIA course number is the same as the NFI course number. So the class has one number for both organizations. Yeah, I remember that was another big, big monumental thing for us as instructors is we didn't have two numbers to deal with anymore. So yeah, a lot of those things going. So Rick, I'm going to ask you now, let's think back on our history a minute. You and I, I'm going to call us both good old boys. We come from rural America. Uh, we grew up in the wood stove business. You had other jobs. It's amazing. You said you work for a photography studio. I used to be an offset pressman for a company that did photographs called Jones and Prez now and used to print thousands and thousands of little giveaway certificates at one time. But there was two big photography companies that did that and traveled to Kmart's and everywhere took your kids' pictures. But here's what I wanna here's where I want you to go with this. I want you to think about where we've been. We've been through and we are an industry that nobody realized what creosote issues were in the early 80s. Nobody realized what direct connects were. We went through an industry that went through changes. Gas, I can remember when it was only a natural vent. Then it went to a vent free. Now it's direct vent. We have all these different types of gas. We got all these different types of controls. I remember thinking to myself, I was selling gas logs. 
And one day they started putting a remote control on a gas log. And I thought to myself, this business is going to get a whole lot more complicated. And I had no idea that we would go to the type of controls. We're also dealing with energy issues. We're dealing with people that legalities don't allow pilots anymore. We're looking at a world that's looking at cleaner air, less fuel usage. All these things are going on. So from your outlook, what's going to be looking at a crystal ball? Where does this industry need to be keying itself to be a viable business three years from now, Rick? Well, I think a lot of it, a lot of it comes down to a couple things. First of all, there's a vast number of misconceptions out there. We have to do a better job of getting our information into other people, building officials, insurance companies, builders, architects. I get phone calls every week from builders and architects that want to do some of the strangest things you've ever heard about. And to us, this is routine every day. We know that, but we have this body of knowledge that we've never got out to these other organizations. A couple of years ago, I started teaching classes for building officials. And you can't fathom some of the questions these guys ask me at these classes. We need to get our information out and get rid of some of these misconceptions because some of these guys, you know, the standard line is, I've been doing it this way for 25 years. You know what? You've been doing it wrong for 25 years. There are very few masonry chimneys out there that are built right. Um, we need to get the education beyond the walls of just this industry. And then it's going to be hang on to your hats because there's going to be a lot of changes. I don't think no matter what legislation comes along, I don't think you're ever going to see the fireplace or the stove go away. But yes, it's going to change. It's going to change rather dramatically. Uh, you were mentioning uh, standing pilot lights. There are organizations in this country that want to ban standing pilot lights. There's an organization in, in Ontario, Canada, that want to make standing pilot lights mandatory. There, there's got to be, there, there, there's going to be a whole lot of change coming along. Um, a lot of it probably will never make sense. It doesn't have anything to do with logic. It has to be, it has to do with politics. But as an industry, we can't isolate ourselves from the politics. It's going to happen and we have to be a part of it. And that, like Tom Pugh used to always say, all politics is local and it takes local people staying in touch with what's going on in their community. And then we need to educate them so they don't make stupid decisions. You know, Rick, right over your left shoulder is a book. Or your, yeah, look over and look up here at me. Look at my screen. That's <laughs> okay. So that same book is there. Now, I'm named in this book. And what this book is, is called The Family of Fire, The History, People, and Growth of the Hearth Industry. And this was a project when I first went on the NFI board that I, that being completed, uh, someone else had started it. He had gotten sick, but being completed this book. And I'm going to tell you something. I've been in this industry. And when I read through this book, it opened my eyes up so much to what had gone on. And what took us to this point? And see, that's where I think a lot of people fail. It's kind of like in world events. You look at it. If you actually look at what caused wars and everything else, 
This is how you look forward. But as I've read through this book, it was like, it was really amazing. And actually I based seminars off of this, of the history of the fireplace, the history in America. Because as you went through this, it was really amazing that at one time there was a move to ban gas logs into the U.S. Congress. They were going mm -hmm. to take them out because, believe it or not, for some reason, today we have abundant natural gas. But for some reason, we were running out of natural gas in those days. You know, uh, it was. It's like turn the. You remember when they had to turn the thermostats down in all the public buildings? But if you look at the history of this business, it's really such interesting how the world economy brought this business into being. It became because of OPEC. It became because of these different things. And when you look at the differences, like, you know, a lot of times I saw Franklin fireplaces. I really didn't know that a, fra a true Franklin fireplace was not that freestanding thing that came from Taiwan in the 70s and how it moved through and how it, it evolved from fireplaces being sold by J.C. Penney and Montgomery Wards and Sears Roebuck. But then as I started putting this all together, I brought it back into my own realm. I can remember when there were no fireplace shops. I can remember when I had no idea what a chimney sweep was. And one day I was at work and opened up a Mother Earth News and there was an article about chimney sweeps. And, hey, you could get in this complete with top hat, $17.99. But they had it on special that month for $14.99, Rick. But when you go back to all these things and see the things that Thoman said about we got to do something about safety. And Bob Daniel said, you know, if we don't do something about smoke out of these appliances in a few years, somebody's going to tell us, well, guess what they did? And that's what you got to do, guys. You got to look at the history. You got to look at how you got to this point, and you got to look at where you're going. And you got to know that the consumer is going to want new things. You can't change that. What you've got to be able to do is capture that market for what that consumer wants. And I'm going to pass this along. The consumer today is more demanding than he's ever been in his life. You can complain about it or whatever. It's like we were talking a while ago, Rick, and you tell me, I see people on Facebook and you survey some of the Facebook pages. But when I see people and they're, and they're talking about people in other industries and they look at it and we're going to say that some of the language is unsavory at times. Some of it's kind of attacking. I look at it this way. No one has ever reached out to them and shared with them. You want to do this, Rick, I encourage people, you got to network on a local market area to get your message across. It's not that they don't, you know, it's not their fault they don't know. Nobody's reached out with this hand and said, hey, this is how you do it better. Not in a combative mood, but where you're coming over and working out a win-win situation. So Rick, as we end this interview today, I'd like to know what Rick, what would Rick Blayhoos, you got an opportunity, Rick, this could be your legacy. This could, you know, hey, we're not gonna be around forever, Rick, okay? We're both in, let's face it, we're both in our 60s. We're facing a day that we won't be in this industry. So what's Rick's words to this industry to kind of inspire them of what the potential is and where you can go if you'll just work towards it. My my passion, obviously, for years has been training. You know, I, I got this job because I was passionate about training. The thing that worries me the most is so many times we give training lip service. 
everybody says, yes, I believe in training. Yes, we're going to hire people and we're going to train them. Um, when a push comes to shove, it doesn't happen. What do you do? You hire somebody new. You say, geez, I'm really busy today. Here, go work, go work with Frank. And you, you, you give them off to Frank and say, do what Frank does. And the problem is, the reason why Frank doesn't have anything else to do is because he's the weakest link in the chain. I want training to be done by your best employee, not the one that has the most time. But we need to actually do it. The, I, I tip my hat. I had a dealer 30 years ago when I was very early in this industry who built an addition onto their store. And when they built the addition in the basement, they built a training room. And tip my hat to them, 30 years later, that is still a training room. And he still runs regular classes for his, his employees. For most dealers, by now, he'd be storing gas logs and chimney parts and all kinds of stuff in that room. He has maintained that room as a training room for 30 years and teaches his guys on a regular basis. And you know what? He has a waiting list of people that want to work for his store because he is recognized in the community as a very well-run, very honest, knowledgeable location. And you know, Rick, I think that if you were to ride around with me around America today, we have quite a few clients that have built, and we don't call them training rooms, we call them training centers now. And we've got some people that have put together some really phenomenal training setups. And they also have the capability of doing group training. Like I said, the online thing, uh, that's the way our process works. We encourage you to do it as a group. So the owner is there moderating it and making sure the questions are answered those kind of things. But these are starting to crop up. This influenced me about six years ago. I was at a National Chimney Sweep Guild convention, and the speaker, the keynote that year, was a guy by the name of Al Levy. And Al Levy is a coach and consultant out of the plumbing industry. And he knew Bob Ferrari and made the connection, whatever, so he spoke to the group. But that day, Al Levy came out with one of the best marketing terms, and guys, gals, Mark this one down to use it. He said, what you've got to do is you've got to become a trainer. You've got to develop a training center within your own location that you're going to train your people. And then you have a new word to market. We don't train our employees in your home. We train them in our training center. And to me, it's like that's what is going on. There's a lot of these phenomenal training centers. Uh, if you're ever in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, I want you to stop and go to Anderson's Chimney up there. Anderson Chimney has got a complete floor. We do fireplace retrofit training. We go through a week's training there. If I look at it, we develop training rooms at other locations. And part of what we do when we help a company put a strategy together, usually it's a move in a building, to be honest with you. Just, we just don't have the right facility. So that's one of the descriptions in there. If you're going to build a successful business, you've got to have a training center in your own facility. And what you're looking at when you're doing that, of doing your own training, and this is what I'm finding. The companies that are doing this, they're going to an entirely new level, and that level is being reflected in their bottom line and in their profits and lower callbacks, more chargeable times, actually being charged and everything else. So I'm, you know, I'm glad you said that. Because that's dead on the money of what I see. You've got, and now today, okay, training has now moved to a whole new avenue. How many, just curious, Rick, 
How many hours of training is available on the NFI site? Hours, golly, we've got 274 classes. They're roughly between 60 and 90 minutes each. So, you know, probably 400 hours worth of classes. 400 hours worth of classes. Then you take, you know, and we're doing classes and we're, and now we're doing them live stream. I remember when you and I talked, I said, hey, we're going to start doing this. And you told me, man, if I had the time, I would be doing that in a heartbeat. Okay. But I'm just limited on what I can, what we can do here. And man, we're so happy to have you as a partner that's actually doing this kind of education out there for the industry. Cause yeah, we make a living doing this. There's no, you know, let's don't beat around the bush. But at the same time, we want to build the expertise of the people within this industry. Well, Rick, my friend, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. So you guys know this is the day before Thanksgiving. And so many paid employees, what are they doing? They're taking off. Well, Rick Blahus is in his office the day before Thanksgiving. And I sent him a message last night. And he was willing to do this even on Friday on his day off. How about that? So, you know, get into it. But anyway, Rick, I really appreciate you being on here. And more than that, I appreciate your friendship. And I really appreciate the cooperativeness that we get with NFI. You guys are super and super partners to work with. And we're so proud to be an NFI training partner with you guys. Jerry, I love this industry. You know, it's, uh, you know, you've heard so many people in this industry say, we're talking about building a fire in your customer's living room. Can we please make sure that we do it right? Um, after 30 some years in this business, I've just met so many guys along the way that I just cherish. Your friendship has been incredible. So anything we can ever do to help, you just let us know. Well, I can remember last year we were both we were Louisville, Kentucky, and went out. Remember we went on that boat. We just sat there. It was kind of a easy. It was just a friendly. It's just conversation. Just time to relax and all that. So Rick, appreciate your friendship. So guys and gals, we appreciate you joining us here once again at the Chimney and Fireplace Success Network. We do this podcast every single week. We do this so we can share information with you. What we want to do is give you the methods, the processes, the education, anything we can do to help you live your dreams. This show is sponsored by CBC Coaching. You know, what we do is our dream, our excuse me, our mission is to help you take your business dreams and turn them into your business realities. So that's going to end it for this week. In closing, I hope you know that it is both an honor, it's a privilege to be able to share our words with you and have fine people like Rick on this show with every week. So tune us in next week. You never know who our next guest will be because we got some top names coming. Just like today, my friend Rick, there's more coming down. Thanks for joining us here each week at the Chimney and Fireplace Success Network, sponsored by CBC Coaching, providing you the coaching and educational outreach services you need to move to your dream destination in business and in life.